echoing in the matter that he was calling himself the Good Shepherd. I don't want to repeat that except to point out one very beautiful truth. I was reading this afternoon uh, a volume written some years ago by a dear friend of mine, Dr. Mark Cameron, on the Gospel of John, and he made a significant statement that I said, my goodness, I've never thought of that before, never, I've never seen this before, and I've, and I've got to share it while we're right here on the subject of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. In the 10th chapter and in the uh, 16th, uh, the 14th verse, he says, I am the Good Shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now we know that, don't we? Looking back 2,000 years, that's what he did. But Dr. Cameron pointed out for us a rather significant and beautiful truth that we have in this statement of Jesus the most marked contrast between the law and grace that could be found. For under the law, the sheep gave their life for the shepherd in all of the sacrificial system. In grace, the shepherd gave his life for the sheep. And I would just say in parentheses, for anybody, for any pastor who might be struggling with the proper New Testament pastoral role, it is not the role of being a tyrant or a dictator or exercising all authority and having folks to come and bow down to you. But our mo role model is the master who said, I, the good shepherd, will give my life for the sheep. I just wanted to throw that in before we got into tonight's study. All right. Now, let's look in that 10th chapter, very briefly, beginning at the 22nd verse, the 22nd through the 42nd verse is dealing with the unbelief of the Jews. It is around the episode of the Feast of the Dedication. Now, it says here, uh, they then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Feast of Dedication, what was it? Indeed, what is it? For the Feast of Dedication is still observed by the Jews. You probably know it more readily by the term Hanukkah. Our Jewish friends observe Hanukkah at approximately the same time every year that we celebrate Christmas. And the Feast of Hanukkah is the Feast of Lights. The Feast of Hanukkah, in this of the Feast of the Dedication, is looking back to the time 
when the temple of God had been rededicated to the glory of God. It had passed through quite a terrible time. Back uh, in the second century, about 200 years before Christ was born and before Christ came, there was a ruler, Epiphanes, and uh, he didn't like the Jews, and he didn't like anything that was going on at the temple, and he knew that the Jews hated anything that had to do with pigs. And so to give the ultimate insult, he gave an order that a pig would be slaughtered on the holy altar in the temple. That's the ultimate blasphemy for the Jew. That was a terrible time. Then about 164, 165 B.C., under a rebellion led by Judas Maccabeus, there was a reclaiming of the land and the temple, and the temple was cleansed. And so every year after that, there was the celebration of the Temp the Feast of Dedication, or as we know it as Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights. And they light a different candle in each of the days of, of that time. It's a time of happiness, time of festivity. It's a time of giving gifts. And that's an interesting time. But it was at this particular time in the winter, at the Feast of the Dedication in Jerusalem, Jesus was walking in Solomon's colonnade. Then the Jews gathered around him saying, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, come on out and say so plainly. Are you the Messiah? If you are, tell us. Well, that's logical, I suppose, for them to ask. But Jesus answered them and he said, well, I did tell you, but you didn't believe me. He said, I've been I've been involved in these sign miracles and you've seen these. You won't believe me? Why don't you at least believe the sign miracles that you've seen me perform, that you've seen me do? He said, why do you keep wondering whether I am the person that I say I am or not? I've declared to you that I'm the Messiah. You don't believe me. And then he goes on to say, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, for I and the Father are one. You ever have any doubts or wonder or question marks, and you just sort of hump your shoulders a little bit and say, well, I really don't know about this business of the security of the believer. So many folks used to be strong for the Lord, and now they can't be found around anymore. I, I, I don't know about that. Listen, it's just like the believer getting inside, being placed by God inside a protective envelope, a protective environment, and that protective environment placed inside another, and that one placed inside another. You see, the Holy Spirit of God surrounds us and is within us, and then we are in Christ, and Christ is in God, and so circle upon circle and protective environment upon protective environment and Jesus said, if you belong to me, you don't have to worry. Nobody's going to be able to snatch you out of my Father's hand. We have that same truth given to us. Another place in the Scripture, 
You know, when it says that there's a, there's a lot of meanness going on in the world, and there is one who seeks to rule this world, but he said the, the power that you have, that is the power of the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is in the world. And let's don't forget that. And so in that, in the, in the Feast of Dedication, as is described in verses 22 through 42, this, this wonderful, wonderful uh, discourse of our Lord. But then we see that about verse 40, then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him, and they said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. By the way, isn't that a pretty good uh, epitaph that could be chiseled on any preacher's or Sunday school teacher's or leader's tombstone? We don't have to go around performing miracles, but our great joy is in pointing others to Jesus and to the knowledge, you see, that John was right in pointing. And then that 42nd verse, and in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now we come in the 11th chapter to the seventh and the last of the recorded sign miracles. This is the greatest one. This is one that gives us more glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the power of God and brought those to many, many to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These seven recorded sign miracles, please remember, they were not all the sign miracles that Jesus performed. We're told over and over again that he performed many of them. He said there weren't enough, not enough books around to be able to record all of them. But here are the seven. And they have something, each one, to tell us. And this seventh one is absolutely magnificent. Now, just to the refreshing of your memory, as we think about these seven sign miracles, as we come to the seventh tonight, the first one was when Jesus turned the water into wine. The second one was when he healed the royal official's son. The third one was when he healed the man who had been lame for 38 years. Then the fourth of the sign miracles was when he fed 5,000 plus folks. And then the sixth one was walking on the water. And the seventh was the healing of the man born blind. And now the seventh of the sign miracles is the raising of Lazarus. Eleventh chapter. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, John's not referring to an event that had taken place in the past, but he's simply alerting us to the fact of something he's going to tell us about just in a few minutes after he tells us about Lazarus. That's an event that's going to take place in just a bit. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love sick. Now, 
let, let's stop for a moment and remember the relationship that existed between Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The little town of Bethany is just a little tiny village just over the top of the hill of the Mount of Olives. Doesn't take very long. If you're riding in a, in a tour bus, you get there before you can blink an eye twice. If you're driving your own automobile, you better be careful. Take you a little bit longer because you have to look in 17 directions at once, just like driving through a shopping mall parking lot. Uh, so Bethany wasn't, wasn't very far away. In this particular household, there was a great deal of love. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. It, the kind of relationship existed between them and Jesus was, uh, was just really tremendous. How do I know that? I know that because one day, Jesus and his 12 disciples entered into Bethany, and Jesus said, I'm hungry, let's go on over to Mary and Martha's house. And so went over and knocked on the door, and they were wide-eyed. Mary and Martha looked at him and said, Why, Master, sure, sure glad to see you. What, what brings you our way? He said, We're hungry. Fix us some lunch. Now, the only way I can put that into perspective for you ladies is that if one day and you don't expect it and you're busy and things are just haven't gone really good that day for you. And just about 11 o'clock, the doorbell rings, somebody knocks on the door and you go to the door and it's your preacher and 12 deacons. And, and the preacher says, We've come for lunch. Now, anytime you have a tendency to get a little upset with Martha, wanting Mary to come on in and help her, you, ju you just put it in that perspective, see. So that was the kind of relationship that existed. Jesus felt free to do that. There was a love that existed between them. There was that sort of something that, well, Jesus felt comfortable there. Do you feel comfortable everywhere you go? Of course you don't. You feel comfortable in everybody's house you visit? Of course you don't. There are some places that you go, you can just sort of sit down, settle down deep in a good comfortable chair and just kind of relax and feel at home. There are some places like that. And that's what, that was the situation there. Now, it was in that home there in Bethany this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume. Well, I've said that. Now, they, they, uh, so the sisters sent word over to Jesus, and the message that they sent was, Lord, the one you love, sick. That's always a distressing message. I had a I had a notice of a telephone call early this morning that came late last night. And when I returned that call, I, I discovered that I suppose the dearest friend I have on the earth is sick and in the hospital. And my daughter wanted me to, wanted me to know about that. There's always concern when you get a message 
that something's happened to somebody you love that you care about. And Mary knew she got that word to Jesus that, that, that he'd just take care of things. When he heard this, Jesus said to those who had heard him get that message from Mary, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Have you ever prayed to the Lord and somehow thought that you're that the words were not getting any higher than the ceiling? That there was an urgent need and you laid it before the Lord and it just seemed like the Lord was deaf? Or the Lord had gone off somewhere and the Lord didn't care anymore? Jesus waited two days before he started out. Then he said to his disciples, all right, it's time to go. Let's go on back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. Are you going to go back there? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep. But I'm going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Well, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe you see Jesus was going to teach them a lesson they did not dream possible Jesus was going to give a demonstration of power and glory a sign miracle that would both amaze them and thrill them, but not for the sake of simply a public display of something that is wonderful and unusual, but rather the ultimate lesson of the power that he had. Let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus, Anybody know what Didymus means? That's an interesting nickname. Literally means twin, that's all. We get our word ditto from that. When you ditto under something, that means the same word. You're twinning a word. And so Thomas, twin. I don't know why I just didn't go on and say that. Then Thomas, called the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, 
Let us go also that we may die with him. Now, all that they could remember was the fact that in the previous experience in Judea, the people had picked up stones and were getting ready to kill Jesus. That's what they wanted to do. And the disciples were scared to death. They said, well, they're, they're going to kill him and they're going to kill us too. When Jesus said, it's time for us to go back over there, then Thomas said, well, all right, let's go too. And we're, we're willing, Master, we're willing to die with you. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of the brother. Now, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Notice this, that Jesus does not come to the house immediately. As Jesus and the disciples are approaching Bethany, word is sent over. Martha gets that word. She leaves the house, and she goes outside, probably right out the very edge of the little tiny village. And there she meets Martha. And Martha says, Master, 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 if you had been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. But I know, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask about Lazarus. And Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she said, oh, Master, I know that. I know that in the last day, in the great resurrection, I know that that's going to take, I know he's going to rise again. I, I know that. Why is that kind of conversation important? It's important first because her dead brother was already put away over there in the, in the tomb. And secondly, there was a group of Jews known as the Sadducees who were teaching there was no resurrection that when you died, you were dead. Atheists believe that. The atheists who do not believe in God then do not believe in a soul and do not believe in a heaven or a hell or an immortality. They simply believe that just like a dog or a cat or a bird, when you die, you're dead, period. And so the prevalent teaching of the Sadducees, and there were many Jews who did not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in an immortality. And so when Jesus said, your brother's going to rise again, she said, oh, I know that, as if to say, I'm not a Sadducee, Master. I know that, I know that when, the, when the big resurrection day comes, you know that he's going to do that at the, at the last day. Jesus said to her, and here's where I hope you're an underliner, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? If you go to the little village of Bethany today, there's a little tiny building there called the tomb. A little church built over the sign, a little, little shrine, round with a little dome on it, and inscribed in gold letters, at least the last time I saw it, it was gold. The words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. And Martha said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, 
the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she hurried back to the house. Jesus tarried there on the edge of the little town. She hurried back and she told Martha. And she said, Martha, Martha, Mary, Mary, the teacher's here. And she's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who had been with Mary at the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her thinking that she was going to go over to the tomb and mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet, and notice she said exactly the same thing Martha had said to him. Oh, Master, we sent you word. If you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. His spirit, in his spirit, and he was troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, Look how he loved him. But some of them standing off on the edge of the crowd, they're always the murmurers. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You see the criticism. It was hurled at him. And then Jesus goes to the tomb and he says to them, take away the stone. Martha protests. She said, oh, master, let's don't take away the stone. Said he's been in there four days. Now the Jews did not embalm like the Egyptians. The Orthodox Jew of today practices exactly the same thing. The rabbi comes, the body is washed with a mixture of vinegar and eggs, wrapped, placed in a very simple wooden box without any metal, and then buried, if possible, by sundown of the same day that death occurs. Because from dust we have come and to dust we shall return, and therefore nothing should be done to slow down the process. And so four days, the body in its decay would give off a very offensive odor. He's been there four days, Master. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people who are here, that they may believe that you sent me. And then after he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice. Now, if you've got a weak heart, just protect it for a minute. Jesus said, 
Lazarus! 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 Come out! Dr. Lee used to say that Jesus was so specific in the pronouncing of the name of Lazarus that if he had not identified him, the authority with which he spoke would have emptied every tomb in the area. And the people in amazement watched. In the burial customs, he had been wrapped from his feet to the top of his head. Then they start at the chin and go to the top. And here comes this man, dead, four days. And he hobbles forth with those white bands wrapped about him. And he hobbles forth. And they begin to cut away the white wrappings. And it's Lazarus. Mm. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Mm. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Remember, we've said that in every one of the sign miracles, two things, the glory of Jesus would be spotlighted and it would result in many believing. But a third consequence in every one of the sign miracles was that there would also be opposition to him that would come about because of it. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and they fussed among themselves and they say, what in the world are we accomplishing? Here this man is performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. He said, you don't know anything at all. Here, by the way, Caiaphas, who was not intending to be a friend, or to acknowledge or to know anything about the reason that Jesus had come into the world, yet God allowed him to be prophetic at that moment. He said, do you not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that a whole nation perish? Now, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. He did not understand the full import of what he said, but he spoke the word of God in that instance. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. Isn't that exactly the reason Jesus was going to die? They were plotting his death because they hated him. But here the high priest that year spelled it all out in crystal clear terms. That one man is going to die for the whole nation. Even the enemies unknowingly give testimony. 53rd verse, from that day on they plotted to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim 
where he stayed with his disciples. Now we come to the 12th chapter. In that wonderful 12th chapter, we have the account of Mary who anoints Jesus. Here, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. That's an interesting guest list, isn't it? Of course, that's where he was. He was back at Lazarus' home. But here was the man who had been dead for four days, and now he's there at the table with the Lord. And Jesus is there. We find that there are some curiosity seekers. There are always people who want to buy a ticket to a freak show, and they, they figured Lazarus was a freak been dead four days. Nobody had ever been anything like that. They wanted to see this man. So, so a lot of them were looking in the windows and peering in the doors, and they, they wanted to get a look at Lazarus. And by the way, you find later on that, that that one dying of Lazarus was not enough for the, for the authorities wanted to kill him again. You see, they, they wanted, to, wanted to get rid of him once again because walking around Lazarus was a living testimony, the power of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. Now, Lazarus was among those reclining at table. Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. There are some who say that the value of that represented about a full year's earning of an average worker. Now, that's a whole heap of sacrifice. One year of work. And she took the ointment and she rubbed it on his feet and she took the long beautiful strands of the hair of her head and bending down close she wiped the feet of the master with her hair and the fragrance the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume isn't that a beautiful picture But there's always somebody around who's going to fuss. Doesn't make any difference how wonderful. Doesn't make any difference how exciting or how thrilling the event. There's always somebody in the crowd who wants to fuss. You read over there in one of the other Gospels the account of the healing of the, of the paralytic. Those, those four men brought that paralytic to Jesus. They couldn't get to the house because of the press of the people. And so with great difficulty, I mean, they had a hard time. You ever tried to carry somebody that was paralyzed on a stretcher and carry him up some stairs, a little old narrow outside stairway up to the top of a, of a roof? They had a hard time getting him up there on the roof. Then they began to tear away the tiles. And Jesus was in the house teaching. Well, now they tore the tile away and dust began to fall down. Maybe a chunk fell down. Somebody stepped back and they looked up. Hole got bigger and hole got bigger and hole got bigger and people standing back and they were looking around looking like that. And it was. And then all at once, here were four faces looking over. And these folks were looking back up. And then they had a rope and so they began to, boy, very, very gingerly and easily. They didn't want to drop him. They didn't want to hurt him. They let him down right at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful scene? But 
I guess it was the chairman of the House and Grounds Committee. Maybe the chairman of the Finance Committee. He's standing off there. Hmm. He's going to pay for that roof. There's always somebody. Now, Judas, Judas said, Mary, you shouldn't have done that. That's a whole year's salary of somebody. That's too much money. Shouldn't have done that. Jesus said, hush up. Said she knew exactly what she was doing. She was anointing my body for my burial. She was getting ready. A lot of conversation took place. Folks didn't really understand much, even those that were close by. But in that, in that experience and coming out of it then, uh, Jesus, Jesus was indeed anointed for his burial. Meanwhile, a large crowd of the Jews, ninth verse says, found that Jesus was there and he came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Now we come at the 12th verse, in that 12th chapter, to the account of the triumphal entry of Jesus. He goes to Jerusalem, come to the feast. Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. They take the palm branches and they go out to meet him. Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? Literally, it's save, save, save. And the same ones who threw the palm branches out for him and were shouting their praise to him were the same ones just a few hours later, crying out toward Pilate and said, Crucify him! Kill him! How quickly the crowd can turn. All right. Let's look at 20th verse. The episode beginning at the 20th verse where Jesus predicts his death is extremely important. Remember, I have said on any number of occasions where Jesus was encouraged to do something or to go in a certain direction, he said, no, no, my hour has not yet come. Remember that? My hour has not yet come. But now, in the 12th chapter and the 20th verse, read this. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we sure would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. 23rd verse declares, Jesus replied, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. I don't know all that says to you, but I would like to interpret it this way. That the hour came when the non-Jew, when the Greeks came and asked to see him. And Jesus said, my hour has come, for I came not only for the Jew, but I have come for all men, for the Greeks, for the barbarians, for the aliens, 
for those of distant lands and different language. Jesus said, I have come that all men everywhere might have life in me. It was when the Greeks, they were the proselytes, they had forsaken their old religions and believed in the one true God and had come to the Passover feast. They had made the pilgrimage. No doubt it was the highlight of their life. They had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at Passover time. And they heard about Jesus and they said, we must see him. And Jesus chose that moment to say, my hour has come the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we come into the final discourses of Jesus. Last sayings are always so important. Modern medicine is a wonderful thing. There are many almost miracles that are performed almost daily in terms of modern medicine. But one of the downsides, I think, of probably the time in which we live in the fancy sterile hospital room and the intravenous feedings and the drugs and the medicines to reduce the pain of final hours and final minutes is that a great deal of the final conversations that we used to have with our loved ones don't take place anymore. But those final conversations, when we're with the people that we love and we know somehow, some way, that this just may be the last time we're going to get to talk to them, those last words are important to us. And if we can gather up the courage to talk about some things, it can be some of the sweetest moments of existence, those last conversations with people we love. And verse chapters 13 through 17 deal with these final conversations of the Master. In the 13th chapter, in the first 17 verses, we have the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feast. This is not the Passover meal, where it says it's before the Passover feast. The practice of any good host was to wash the feet of the guest who had come because the sandals and the feet were dirty and it was a way to refresh them before they would recline at table. That had not been done in this instance, and so Jesus takes the basin and he takes the towel and he goes and starts washing the feet of the disciples. And old Peter says, uh-uh, not me, Lord. Uh-uh, you're not going to wash my feet. You said, if I don't wash you, we don't have anything together. We don't have anything in common. You don't have any relationship to me. Well, he said, if that's the way it is, then don't just wash my feet. Wash me all over. That's, that's what he's saying. Just wash my hands and my face and my neck and give me a good scrubbing, Master. And Jesus went on to say, now, 
this is the way I want you to be with the people. I want you to be a servant. And the greatest thing you can be, he said, is a servant. And we have that experience. In verses 21 through 30, we have this account of the talking about the betrayal, Je Jesus' trouble. He alerted Judas, but somehow not the other disciples in that, uh, from the, in around the 21st verse there. Here was Jesus expressing the fact that there was the wounds that had come to him because of what Judas was going to do. Then in the 13th chapter, the 31st verse, we have Jesus telling Peter that he's going to deny him three times. Well, he does that. Peter doesn't think he's going to do it, but he does. Do you suppose that when we come over to the close of John's gospel that we'll look at in the morning, when Jesus asked Peter not one time, not two times, but three times, do you love me? Don't you suppose that has some relationship to the three times that Peter denied him. He didn't deny that he was the Messiah. He simply denied that he knew him. And then in that 13th chapter and the 34th verse, after telling them, children, I'm not going to be with you, but just a little bit longer, the 34th verse, he says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that, that you're one of my disciples if you love one another. And I put three stars and circle them in the margin by that. I say with a heart that is heavy for a people that I love, and have given 